0: I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. For some reason, a few months ago, God directed me to this passage, and in many ways I really fell in love with this passage of Scripture. Um, It's just, yeah, let me read it, and, and as we go in the message, you'll understand why I fell in love with it. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read the first four verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice this, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and so on. But of first importance, he says, this gospel. Now let's go on to uh, keep your finger in front. 1 Corinthians 15, because we'll come back to that more often than Second Peter. But uh, let's go to Second Peter a moment. Second, to, I always, in order to find Second Peter, it's always nice to know it comes after Hebrews. Once you found Hebrews, then you go James, and then you're, then you're by Peter. Second Peter 3. Uh, it says, "The day of the Lord will come and." Uh, The day of the Lord is really the last act in the salvation story. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mentions the three important things, that Christ died on the cross for us, that he was buried, and he rose again. But the last, the final chapter, event, in salvation is really the return of Christ. And that's what Peter talks about. The day of the Lord will come, and I'd like to read just verses 10 and 11 First Peter 3, 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now this verse, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening coming? of the day of the Lord. So, because everything is going to be dissolved, we need to be holy people. I'm going to put my pen here because otherwise my pages are going to blow around. All right. What words would you use to describe this culture? What are the words you'd use to describe the kind of society... In which we're living. Let me give you some examples. Shocking, exciting, conflicted, dangerous, tragic, filled with opportunity. All those words probably describe facets of our nation and what happens in our nation. Surveys show that up to 80% of Americans believe that enjoying oneself is the highest goal in life. Those same surveys show that 60% of of practicing Christians who attend church at least once a month have that same goal. Now, the idea that the goal of life is enjoyment is the dominant framework of thought for the vast majority of people in the United States. Not one goal, not a goal, But the highest goal of life is enjoyment. What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, the English Standard Version, which we read, says it very clearly. Paul says, I would remind you of the gospel, or good news, which I preach to you, on which you stand. Of first importance is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's the profound, do you notice the profound difference between those two goals, between enjoyment of life and the gospel? What's the, the, the just the profound difference? One is temporary, one is permanent. One, enjoyment of life, we can lose in an instant a car accident, uh, tragic news of health issues, can change life in a moment. If enjoyment is our goal, it can be gone just that quick. Whereas the gospel is eternal. It's, it's forever. It can't be taken away from us. So the the difference in those two goals of life couldn't be greater. This morning, we'll take a few moments to strengthen our understanding and commitment to this good news. Number one in the good news is what? That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Let me read to you from Romans 3, 23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Or Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Jesus became a merciful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The word propitiation, as used in the English Standard Version, is a powerful word. Romans 1.18, we are told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. God is merciful, but He's also just and righteous. He can't just overlook sin. Someone had to appease God's wrath. Someone had to pay the price. And that's where Jesus' death on the cross, of course, when He died, He made propitiation. He made payment for our sins. That's the wonder and the glory of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. My friends, that is the great foundation stone of the Christian faith. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's number one. That Christ was crucified, paid for our sins. Number two, that he was buried the Bible's clear teaching of Jesus' burial is very important to show that he died, that he truly was dead. That is crucial. His burial shows that he was truly dead. Islam, for example, teaches that Jesus did not really die on the cross. The Crucifixion is anathema to Islam. They have several theories by which they try to show that it was not Jesus who died on the cross. In God's providence, uh, Judy and I have developed a relationship with uh, a couple in our area who are uh, Muslim background and and practicing Muslims. And uh, it's been an interesting journey reading the Bible with this gentleman. First the Gospel of John, now we're reading Hebrews. See, the crucifixion is not something they can tolerate in their faith, and yet it's the linchpin of the Christian gospel. God, through Jesus Christ, made payment. He was buried. Number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Obviously, number three could not be true if number two was was not true. If Jesus didn't die and was buried he couldn't have been raised but because he was buried and died on the cross he was gloriously raised from the dead I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 15 17 to 20 a moment there Paul kind of in a way summarizes beginning verse 17 if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the firstfruits. And we, of course, are part of that firstfruits of Christ's resurrection. Now, if you on your bulletins some of you probably follow on the back of your uh, program is always printed the outline of the uh, message well um, I don't know how many weeks ago uh, pastor Jacob had called and asked if I would bring the message at these two on these two Sundays and lead the service and uh, he said I'd love to have your uh, um, you know your, the passages you're going to preach on and, and a basic outline. I said, all right. But uh, that was a long, a long time ago. And uh, I didn't have the second part of this message finished yet. So um, there's quite a bit of change from what you have in your program to what I'm going to uh, share with you as far as the second part of this message. In fact, in, instead of... Uh, the outline you have of first importance—that really goes with the first part. Um, the actual heading of the second part of the message is this: the practical impact of this good news. If you're taking notes, you can put scratch out a uh, first importance and put the practical impact of this gospel or this good news. First this gospel that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 stands as a historic Christian faith. Now, why do I mention that? Because much of Western Christianity has left the historic Christian faith. For example, the Death of Christ, the substitutionary atonement usually goes first, and so on. So, it's really crucial that we believe and stand on, as Paul said, the historic Christian faith. Now, that historic Christian faith had been lost in many ways in history, and I'm sure some of you immediately know when it was rediscovered, the historic Christian faith was rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation in 1517. And, of course, we have always celebrate Reformation Day on that other holiday, which I won't even mention, October 31. But that is the date, October 31, of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which began, along with John Calvin, the Protestant Reformation. Because I'm a pastor, I get the um, magazine from Calvin Seminary, and uh, it's called um, Focus. And uh, it was very interesting that uh, they focused on the Protestant Reformation because if you get the numbers right, Protestant Reformation was 1517. What does 2017 mean? It's the 500, this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So there's, this year, there's going to be, there is already, but all the way until October, and through October, there's going to be a tremendous amount of conversation about the Protestant Reformation. Is it still necessary? Is it still important? Et cetera, et cetera. So, Calvin Seminary, in their magazine, The Focus, did a a very specific uh, uh, commemoration and uh, discussion of the Protestant Reformation. And President Maidenblick, that's the president of Calvin Seminary, asked this question, how do you summarize something that happened 500 years ago, but still shapes conversation and culture? He says this he suggests that what shapes and describes the protestant reformation are the five solas some of you have probably heard of the five solas let me just mention sola fide this is the latin terms by faith alone sola scriptura by scripture alone solo christo through christ alone Sola gratia by grace alone, soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. That says President Maidenblick is the probably the best summary of the Protestant Reformation, the five solas. And uh, uh, if you didn't get them written down, you can go to the website and pick up my message and get them the five solas. That really summarizes the Christian faith, the the historic Christian faith which we hold to as a Christian Reformed Church. Now, what does that faith mean in your daily life? Obviously, uh, I know some of you by name. I... uh, some know some of you uh, fairly well. Jaloi and Candy were part of our church in Tacoma years ago, so I know them better. I know Ken and Millie somewhat. But uh, I don't know a lot of you by, you know, personal experience. And so, just reflect a moment. What difference does the Christian faith, the gospel, this historic Christian faith make in your daily life? Whether you're in the Navy, whether you're retired, uh, no matter what you do or who you are, you're a professing Christian, or at least you're a seeker. The fact that you're here this morning suggests that you have an interest in the Christian faith. So what difference does it make that you're a believer a follower of Jesus. Well, first of all, the first one was, of course, that we believe in historic Christian faith. The second one is that it demands of us incredible gratitude and daily obedience. That's the second point under under this whole thing of what difference, the practical impact of the Christian faith. Gratitude to God for saving us. He wouldn't have had to save us. He could have let us go to hell if He wanted. I mean, that's what we deserve. Eternal punishment. He didn't have to send His Son. Jesus didn't have to come. But He did. And so, the first is incredible gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. But what does gratitude demand? What does love demand? It demands obedience. It demands that I'm faithful to what God calls of me to to live in a, a life of service to Him. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with somewhat. I always loved the uh, three Gs. You ever know the catechism can be divided into three I, I taught I've taught the high school, Sunday school class in our church for almost as long as I've been in ministry there, 1973. But anyway, um, I love the three G's. Guilt, the gospel can be summarized in these three G's. We're guilty for God, before God of sin. We go to hell. Guilt, grace, God's amazing grace. And I think we're going to sing that song, right? No? All right. Amazing grace. heard you practice it. Grace. Guilt. Grace. What do you think the third G is? I'm sure it's on the tip of your tongues. What? Glorification? You bet. But the one I usually stress with my high school kids is gratitude. But glorification is, in many ways, has the same idea. Glorifying God by showing gratitude for what he's done for us. And there's three S's too. Sin, salvation, service. Uh, when you teach high schoolers, uh, how should I say this? Are there any high schools here? (laughs) I've taught high schoolers in the Sunday school class for many years. And, uh, you know, you're just thankful at the end of a year if you get certain things in their heads that they'll actually remember. And uh, so the three G's and the three S's, the kids who grew up in our church, they will know that Pastor Rod hammered into their heads the three G's and the three S's. Guilt. Grace gratitude, sin, salvation service a way to summarize if you hadn't heard those before it's a way to summarize the gospel that's very simple and yet memorable and so um, incredible gratitude yeah um, one other thing um, really struck me um, in Gal- I was reading Galatians and uh, Galatians 2 verse 10 has a really interesting little thing it was it was early in Paul's ministry in the Apostle Paul's ministry and uh, he was uh, interacting with what he called the pillars of the church Peter James the brother of Christ and uh, so on he was with the pillars of the church and they were kind of uh, not sure what you know Paul was really like yet and uh, what he was teaching and uh, they said you know you, you know the fundamentals of the gospel which we just talked about but he said one more thing, Galatians um, he says this, um, I just lost my spot here. where are we, where are we at here? Oh, yeah, Galatians 2:10. He said this: what was essential, the things we talked about, all they asked was that we ha- have, that we should continue to remember the poor. And then Paul says, that was the very thing I was eager to do. And so the part of the gospel that is totally essential according to Galatians is that thing of being caring for the poor. The poor. The next part of um, the practical implications of the gospel is the return of Christ. As I mentioned when I read from Second Peter, the day of the Lord, that is the final event In salvation history. Peter writes in his third chapter. A verse. That for me personally. Is one of the most probing verses in the Bible. Listen to it a moment. Second Peter 3. Verses 10 and 11. You read this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That was from the New International Version. I read it earlier Uh, when we was reading the scripture from the English Standard Version. In lots of ways, I like the English Standard Version, but on this particular case, I think the NIV is a little more clear when it says, the elements will be destroyed by fire, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day God and speed its coming. And I thought, what does that mean? Ah, I don't know if you, if you grasp that, but how does, how does living godly lives speed the coming of the Lord? I thought, and I, I didn't study that phrase Thoroughly yet, because I, it just the last couple of days has sort of been what? That we speed its coming by living godly lives? That's a that's an interesting thought that the Apostle Paul leaves us there, with us there. That we speed its coming by living lives. Maybe it has to do with The more we live holy lives, the more God's kingdom will come among us. And people will see Jesus in us. That's the first thought that comes to me. Anyway, just a probing passage about living holy and godly lives. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 19 that Paul warns us. He says, You were bought at a price, therefore... Honor or glorify God with your body. So There's some warnings for us as Christians um, as we await the day of the Lord. That's the third thing. The first is the historic Christian faith demands incredible gratitude and obedience. And then await we await the day of the Lord. His, come back, His coming back. And finally those two words that are in the outline, the now and the eternal. The now, of course, means our daily lives, right? Where we're living right now. What's happening right now. That's what I mean by the now. The eternal is, you know, the focus on Christ's return, the focus on our own death, because Isn't it true that Christ's return comes for us when we die? If we aren't here when Christ comes back, if we go before that, that's the time of Christ's return for us, right? When he, when we die, and so that's the eternal. The way, the way I put it in point D, the now must be informed, controlled by the eternal think about that a little Think on those two words a little bit. The now and the eternal. And my suggestion to you is that the now, this life now we're living right now, must be informed, infused, controlled by the eternal in this sense. Knowing that we're going to meet Christ sometime, either when we die Or when he comes back, better inform and control how we how we live in the now, right? As pastors will tell you again and again, you know, we and I'm sure you tell yourself, I I have to be ready any day. Any day. I have to be ready. Back in nineteen ninety one, I'll never forget. Um, we had been to Rhode Island for our son's uh, OCS he was for candidate school and we were there for that and Judy had had a mysterious lump in her breast and um, she thought, I better go in when I get home and she got a diagnosis of cancer and I mean that shook our world it was in her lymph glands and everything That shook our world. And you think about eternity. You think about maybe this is Judy's time. By God's grace, she was healed. But you think we think about that, don't we? I'm sure these two men that are fighting cancer, you know they pray and you pray for their healing. We think about eternity. And so What I'm saying is that the now, today, must be infused and controlled by eternity. Eternal ideas. Eternity that we're going to be with God someday. Either in the good place or the bad place. Either heaven or hell. Depending on what we've done with Jesus. And so... A few days ago, in my one of my devotional books, the lesson was on Noah. On Noah. And the conclusion of this message, and then we're finished almost. The conclusion of this message is that we too can walk with God. There are only two people in the Bible of which it is said they walked with God. One was Enoch, You remember the old story? Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Right. The other one was Noah. Noah walked with God. It says, Uh, just a little phrase. It says that Noah was righteous in his generation. Period, and then it says Noah walked with God. I thought, wow, what does that mean? Is that possible? For you to walk with God? I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you read those little phrases, especially, uh, especially because Noah's generation was a lot like the United States of America. Let me read to you Genesis 6, verse 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound like the United States of America? I mean, our popular culture? It does. That... The wickedness of man was... I mean, we've discarded God's principles. was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continued. I mean, that's who we are by nature without the grace of God. And so, when a culture has rejected God's grace, that's what happens. Then comes 6 verse 9, just two verses, three verses later. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then the little phrase... In 6 verse 9, Noah walked with God. I mean, it just he just slips that in there. Moses, at least we think Moses wrote book of Genesis. He has kind of slips that in there. He said he was righteous in his generation. And then just that little sentence, Noah walked with God. Incredible little verse. Last week, on Father's Day, we talked about saw the great need of our time to be faithful and godly fathers and grandfathers, godly mothers and grandmothers. And somebody told me that if you come from the north, the three points of last Sunday's sermon are on the reader board. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to go. I I hadn't gone north from here yet. I'm going to do that after I get out of here. But uh, uh, we saw last week the tremendous need for godly... Fathers and grandfathers and godly mothers and grandmothers. And the need, the tremendous need in our generation. And, you know, one of the most difficult tasks is being a single mom. But God cares for single moms in their journey. I always think of James 1 verse 7. Religion, or seven twenty seven rather, James 1 27, Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this. To visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. That's God's heart. He cares about those who are alone. And carry on ministry in a family by themselves. Anyway. The culture in which we live is a lot like Noah's time. In description, very similar. But yet Noah walked with God. He he and his sons, somehow, can you imagine that when God surveyed the whole earth of that time, he saw only one righteous family? I mean, we don't know how many people lived on the earth at that time, at the time of Noah. But there certainly was quite a number. But God performed an act of judgment that is greater than any in the history of the world. He wiped out everyone except one family. I mean, that's incredible when you think about it. That this one family remained righteous. and God was able to put them in the ark and save them. And so, how can we do that in this culture how can we remain righteous? I would suggest to you that there is the possibility of walking with God for one reason. We read the verse last week in connection with our scripture out of Ephesians. Ephesians 5 verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine for that leads to debauchery which debauchery is a Old word that describes the life of the culture of Noah and the culture of the United States. Debauchery. Do not get drunk with wine, for that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, walking with God is possible as we're filled by the Holy Spirit. As we're transformed by the Spirit. And so, as I said earlier, the now has to be infused controlled by the gospel, which is part of that gospel is that the Spirit came on Pentecost and fills us with power, with somehow that great possibility of walking with God. Oswald Chambers, I'm sure some of you are acquainted with Oswald Chambers, is, the, other than the Bible, the greatest devotional book of all time, read by more than any other devotional book in the world. My utmost for his highest. Great devotional book. This is this in May 31 devotion. God's ultimate purpose is that his son might be manifest in your and my mortal bodies. God's ultimate purpose is that his son, Jesus, might be manifest or displayed in our mortal bodies. In Acts 4, verse 13, we read these remarkable words. The people noticed and took knowledge that these men, the disciples, had been with Jesus. is an amazing statement? People observe these guys and said, these guys have been with Jesus. They noticed that. And I guess the question that you know, we need to ask our own ourselves. Can people see that we've been with Jesus? in our demeanour, in our attitudes, in our spirit? Can will people see that we've been with Jesus? And that's probably
1: the thing I'd like to leave
0: with all of us today. And I just want to say in closing that I've enjoyed being with you these two weeks. It's been fun. I've really come to love your pastor so much. By God's grace, I was appointed his uh, mentor by classes way back when. And since Tacoma's had a long relationship with this church, it was special for me to do that. And uh, just come to love Pastor Jacob so much. But uh, And uh, just so blessed by his ministry and the fruit God is bringing from it but I know his passion is that the gospel get preached and people see that we've been with Jesus let's pray Father in heaven we are so blessed to live in a country where this gospel can be preached freely where we can preach it and believe it without going to prison. But we know, Lord, that's not true in much of the world. And we pray for brothers and sisters who are suffering terribly for their faith. Hold them, strengthen them. Lord, give us boldness. Give us just a passion that our friends and neighbors might know about Jesus, and that they may see Jesus living in us. That if they know anything about Jesus, they may think, yeah, that person, he reflects Jesus. She reflects Jesus. And if they don't, Lord, help us to be bold that they somehow can come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.